everyone. Welcome to the show Off the Record. I'm Aram Magumov, the host. Thanks for tuning in. On the show, I'm interviewing well-known CEOs and VCs about how to spend the money that you raise effectively and what mistakes to avoid. Uh, my guests have been in the trenches and have lots of practical advice to share from company successes and failures. As a founder, you'll get to hear what you can do better when raising money and after you have raised the money, all in a 30-minute conversation. And if you are also a VC, then you're in the right spot. You'll get to learn from your peers on this on the show. Episode number 12, and I'm joined today by another great founder and CEO, uh, Dr. Brett, um, Dr. Brett Belchutz is the CEO and co-founder of Maple, uh, getmaple.ca. Canada's leading virtual healthcare provider connecting patients and healthcare providers like doctors and therapists for online medical visits in minutes. He's also a practicing physician in Toronto and a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. In addition, Brett's passion for healthcare, communication, and policy have led him to work as an honor medical expert for CTV and Global News, as well as a contributor to outlets such as the National Post. And previously, before uh, a Maple. Brett worked as a management consultant at McKinsey & Company. So, Brett, it's a it's a real honor to have you on our show off the record. Thanks for thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Cool, cool. So, um, I'll kind of just jump jump into it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Maple? Uh, anything that I didn't cover and kind of uh, how you got here in your journey? I know you've you've recently raised also uh, a large amount of funding. If you could maybe talk about that uh, briefly before I get into in, into the rest of my questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Maple was founded five years ago. So we started the company in the summer of 2015. Uh, myself with two co-founders and. For me, it was a very natural business to begin. It was very much guided by what I was living and breathing, working on the front lines of healthcare uh, here in the Toronto area where I live. And at the time, I was working full-time as an emergency room physician uh, in one of the, the, the parts of the city, on the east end of the city. And what I, was, what I was seeing every single day is very much in line with what the statistics will tell you is a huge problem in Canadian healthcare, which is that access to care is incredibly challenging for most Canadians. So if you look at the stats for Canada in comparison to healthcare systems around the world, we have the longest wait times for pretty much everything. The longest wait times for primary care, longest wait times for specialist care, uh, Mm -hmm. longest wait times in the emergency room, highest percentage of people forced to go to the emergency room because they have nowhere else to go. And so in my life, what I was seeing was people waiting four to six hours to see me uh, for really basic needs on, a, on an ongoing basis. So every day I'd go to the hospital and people would wait those incredible amounts of time in, in very uncomfortable circumstances for simple things like a prescription renewal. And I, I kept thinking in throughout the years as I was working on those front lines that this was just a, a terrible thing for everybody involved. It was a terrible thing for the patient. Uh, it wasn't safe because they're exposed to infectious illnesses like the flu and now potentially COVID when they visit the hospital. Um, it was not a good use of funding in our healthcare system because the cost of an emergency room visit is 10 times the cost of a primary care family doctor visit. And so, uh, you know, speaking to these patients as to why they were waiting so long, the answer was always just that they had nowhere else to go. And the other side of the equation was that there is a tremendous extra amount of physician capacity in our healthcare system that the current system just wasn't tapping into. So if you look at the stats, Canada numbers, only about 40 to 50% of Canada's doctors were working fully or full-time. And, uh, you know, I was living that story as well. You know, I was working what is considered full-time 14 to 16 shifts a month and the rest of my month was free and I had very little to do. And so it was great. I, I got to have a lot of nice lunches with friends and go to the gym a lot, but 
uh, at the end of the day, I kept thinking, you know, wouldn't it be great if I could use some of that spare time to help all these people that have nowhere to go? And that was the genesis of the platform, really. The idea was let's build a platform that allows all those doctors like me that have tons of time in their schedule to be able to help all of those people out there that actually need a little bit of extra help. So we began the platform in 2015. It's, it's built it from the ground up. It's grown tremendously since then. Um, we have a whole range of services on the platform now. So uh, the core service is 24-7 doctors uh, across the country where uh, anybody who needs to see a primary care physician uh, for a medical issue can log in, click a button to see a doctor. Average wait time is about 1.5 minutes. So it's almost instantaneous access to a doctor. We have a bunch of other things on there, um, access to mental health care, uh, other physician specialties like dermatology, psychiatry, oncology, et cetera. Um, and, and then we do a whole bunch of other things like in-hospital virtual care. We now provide programs to hospitals that are in rural areas to keep them staffed with virtual physicians, long-term care programs where we actually provide virtual physician staffing for long-term care, which is a critical need, et cetera. And so we're now at a point where there's over 2 million people in Canada that have access to the platform. We have well over a thousand physicians using the platform. Um, it, it's really just been a, an incredible journey uh, and one of very rapid growth. And, and I think the final thing that I'll mention is just great uh, customer outcomes. So, so one of the things that I think we're most proud of is that despite how big we've gotten, the customers are just, and the patients are just incredibly satisfied with, with their experience. So if you look at our internal ratings and our external ratings of the use of the platform, and it's just like Uber where people rate the platform out of five stars after every use, our average rating is about 4.9 out of five stars, which just blows away anything you'll ever see in the physical healthcare setting. Mm -hmm. And I, I know when we spoke before, I know that you had an interesting way of how you started started Maple initially with um, having some of the doctors be some of the first clients that you have and uh, kind of the way you kickstarted the whole, the whole company. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit about, the, uh, about that? Yeah. So if you look at our business, uh, we are very similar to, to many of the marketplace businesses that, that everybody out there would be familiar with. So if you look at companies like Uber, like Airbnb, et cetera, their marketplace companies in that on the one side of the app is somebody providing a service and on the other side of the app is somebody consuming the service. And the difficulty with any marketplace business there's, is there's very much a chicken and egg phenomenon that you cannot build up one side without having the other side uh, already there. And so if you look at Uber, nobody wants to try to be a, a rider on an Uber app when there's no drivers and nobody wants to be a driver on an Uber app when there's no riders. People will find other things to do very quickly. And so we faced the same dilemma when we were starting Maple, which was how do we get patients to come on there and use the service when we don't have doctors? Um, and how do we get doctors to come on and actually provide coverage on the service without patients? And so the, the innovative way that we broke through that is actually we got all of our initial um, friends and family investors to actually be physicians. So these were all my colleagues that worked with me in the emergency room. And so what we recognized was that physicians very much value their time. They're not going to, they're not going to cover a service where there isn't some financial incentive for them to do so. And so the only financial incentive we could really dangle being a new company without any dollars in our pockets was to actually get the physicians to have some ownership of the company and some belief that if this company succeeded, that there would be a, a, a very good reward for them in the long run. And so we actually kind of cracked two chickens um, with, I'd say actually killed two birds with one stone. I'd say not crack two chickens. That's probably not a real expression, but 
But we had two problems right at the beginning that we were trying to solve for. One is how do we get early investment? And two, how do we get some doctors on to cover this with no patients? And so what we recognize is let's get the doctors to be the investors. And now we have money to fund the beginning of the business and we have physician coverage. And so uh, I went out to a lot of my colleagues and pretty much positioned this as the, the hottest thing that they could ever invest in. And the fact that they were the lucky physicians who were getting access to invest in this, that we had a long list of potential investors, but because of their ability to also cover the platform, we were preferentially giving them the opportunity to invest versus anybody else. And so we created an artificial scarcity that made the physicians really excited to invest in. And, that, and it actually worked really, really nicely. The physicians were really excited. They were grateful for the opportunity that their special physician skills was, was giving them to actually put some money into the business. And we got a bunch of physicians on board that actually not only gave us the money to build the initial platform out, but also to ensure that that platform would be staffed on day one. That's oh, amazing. It's, um, as you said, you kind of killed two birds with one stone, getting money to seed the initial kind of business idea and then uh, having those people participate. So it's a win-win, right? Um, with your experience now, and like my next few questions are going to be more around like um, the fundraising side as a founder. Um, you know, some, some people go the bootstrap route. Some people raise money strategically because there's no other way to do it because they want to kind of accelerate it. What's kind of your perspective? I mean, through Maple or what can you pass down to um, some of the other founders who are in a similar spot where they're considering, say, do I keep bootstrapping this or like, do I need to raise X amount of money? And like, um, kind of try to, if you can characterize like the perspective as a founder in the business setting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a, a number of things that go into that equation. It's, it's not a simple question to answer. So the first thing to consider is, is what are you as a founder able to afford when it comes to bootstrapping? It, it, what are your financial resources? What are you willing to lose? Because when we look at a startup, as you know, if you look at the stats of all the startups out there, the vast majority of startups don't succeed. Many, many startups take lots of investment dollars that are burned away and, and no return is ever achieved. So if you are um, somebody who you know, is, is, is really well off financially, you've got lots of money, lots of investments, and this is your latest pet project, and you can easily afford to actually bootstrap this business. And if you lose all the money you're putting in there, it's not really a big deal to you because you've got other savings and other things that, that, will, that will make you whole, or you have some other type of phenomenal skill set that you know you can go back to earning big money in a profession of some sort. Right. Bootstrap may be the right answer for you because why would you give away ownership of your company when you don't have to? Um, if you are somebody who is not in that position, and I would say that's probably the vast majority of founders I've encountered. Most founders um, aren't rich and you know, they, they certainly don't have a clear cut alternative to make back lots of money all of a sudden very quickly if the company fails. Um, you need to now spread the risk. So the risk can't all be on your shoulders. And at that point in time, getting external investors starts to make a lot more sense. So it's not about take no risk. You're always taking risk as a founder. You're taking risk with your time, your earning potential, and you will probably invest some of your own funds, but you don't want all of the risk of this venture to be on your shoulders. Now, the other side of the equation I always like to think about is, is what does the business need? So there's two things that you gain with external investment. So one, you gain a, a turbocharging of the finances of your business and an acceleration of your growth trajectory. And that's the thing that I think most people think about most frequently. And that is something that, again, if you're very, very wealthy, you may be able to recreate that on your own. But the other thing that 
taking in external investment really creates for a business is it creates a network of supporters and a network of strategic opportunities that you might not have access to without those investors being on board. So a great example, just right off the bat, is the example I gave around the physician investors. We needed doctors who were bought in to staff this company. So there's no way other than spending extreme amounts of money in the early days that we could have had those physicians give us the kind of coverage that we had from them as owners of the company in the early days. So that's one example. There are lots of other examples. So it may be that you gain some sort of distribution from your first investor because they own a, a network of, of websites or they own a retail network or something else that gives you a, an advantage that if they're bought in, you will have access to, but if they're not bought in, you just won't. You won't be able to buy that access. So you really need to think about that as well. And then the final thing that I'll, I'll just speak about is what is your personal ambition for the business? You know, what kind of business are you trying to grow? Are you trying to create a technology uh, unicorn? Do you want to have a company that's a billion dollar company in five years? Um, is that the superstar trajectory you actually want to achieve where, where, you know, you're making the headlines for all your rapid growth or are you trying to build a business that at some point in time is a slow growing, but sustainable business that you're the head of forever. And it, it shoots out a check of profitability every year. And this is going to be, you know, your sort of annuity income for the rest of your life. And you love running this business. And it's not a superstar growth business, probably not going to be a billion dollars in five years, but it's definitely something that's going to give you a living for the rest of your life. Because there's almost no way to get to that billion dollar unicorn in five years trajectory without taking external capital. External capital is a necessity to accelerate to that kind of growth. Um, the other kind of business, you probably don't need to take external capital. If you've got the luxury of taking a lot of time for slow growth and eventual returns, you probably want to just be patient about it and build the company up slowly as you're able to. So uh, I think if you add all of that together, those factors about what do you really want in terms of success, um, what are your personal resources and what does the business need? I think you can land on an answer that makes sense for you and your business. Mm -hmm. That's great. Thank you. Um, I know you, you've gone through some, through some funding processes and you've established relationships with different investors. And um, I want to kind of get your take also on that kind of founder investor relationship, because it could go bad. It could go good. Um, you just, it really depends on how some of the terms and things are, are structured. But I've heard some horror stories about some businesses, you know, getting ruined by, you know, uh, pressure from the investors or, you know, ultimately their businesses um, leading to eventual kind of um, cliff moment where it's a sink or swim. Um, as a founder, you really have to have also a lot of discipline and, and be able to push back at times when appropriate on different things. Um, I don't know if you could share some experiences with us or like what your perspectives are on that in terms of how to manage that, you know, in the real world. But I'm sure a lot of the people who will be listening to this would kind of want to hear your story as well. Yeah, there, there's a few comments I would make on that point. And I think it's a point that's well taken. Um, number one, you, you have to choose your investors very, very wisely. So, there are definitely founders that I've seen that all they care about when it comes to the investors is who's going to write the biggest check and who's going to give them the biggest valuation. And the reality is that that just cannot be your, your, your guiding set of principles. Um, when you look at the kinds of rounds you're going to take in, um, in the end, you know, we've done a bunch of rounds and we've had a lot of offers and the range of differences in valuation 
it can vary for sure. You, you're going to see pretty significant percentages in terms of, of differences of what your company is worth. But it, at the end of the day, when you go out to exit time, you know, in 10 years, 15 years, or whatever time you sell your business, the dollar amount that's in your pocket uh, due to potentially, you know, five to 10% difference in valuation at an early round is, is not going to be massively materially different. It will be different, but not massively different. But if you take on the wrong investor that leads to you failing, that is a massive difference because then you end up with zero in your pocket. So it's much more important to have the invest investors come on board that lead you to be much more likely to succeed, even if that gives you a slightly smaller ownership share because of the numbers. So when we were talking to investors throughout all of our fundraising rounds, um, this is not scientific at all, but I'm going to tell you one of the most important things that we focused on is our gut feeling. And, and you know, as much as in business, they tell you, you know, don't lead by your gut. I will say our gut, while it's not the primary uh, driver in financial considerations, it was a huge driver in terms of what is the personality of the people that are investing? Um, are we going to like having to deal with these people and meet with these people regularly? Are we going to enjoy having them on our board? How are we going to feel when this person calls you by surprise, you know, every couple of weeks to, to bring up an interesting topic or a concern that they have? Is this the person that you really want to have involved in your day that much? So we always look at it through that lens because there are some investors where we have gotten a great feeling from day one where we have found them uh, collegiable, collegial, friendly. Uh, their, their ideas are great ones. They come across as sharp. They're, they're, they're helpful in their questions. Um, they're patient in their outlook. That's another really important thing. You know, you want investors who are not going to rush you to make decisions that are potentially bad decisions because their time horizon is different than yours. So we've been really lucky because I would say all of the investors that we've taken on, um, by looking at it through those lenses, they've been really good investors. They're, they're all just genuinely, I feel, good people. They're people who I enjoy when I get a phone call from them. I like speaking to them. I like their counsel. I find that when they give me advice, it's always great advice. It helps me. It doesn't hurt me. So because of that, um, that's meant that I haven't had to push back on too much because it's been a very collaborative process with our investors. There's been very few times where when there comes to be difficult decisions that are made that we don't solve those decisions together versus in, in, a, in a manner that's antagonistic. The other thing I would say as well, beyond really choosing wisely in terms of the kind of people you get into bed with as investors is make sure you have really good counsel. So we have had the benefit of having fantastic legal representation on every single investment round. And so Despite how many good things I will say about our investors, in the end, investors are good are business people, even if they're very good people. They are going to try as part of their investment to have as much say in how you run your business as they possibly can. And many times in their investment offers, they will push for things that are out of market, unreasonable, give them undue influence over your operations. So by having very good counsel uh, that is representing you through these processes, you can very effectively um, stomp down any requests that are unreasonable, that are out of market, that will give them the ability to have too much control. And so that's the other thing that I think has been very successful for us is that although we've raised a lot of capital, um, there is no investor that has any special rights uh, in terms of influencing the decision-making of the company. Um, we, we have no special vetoes that they have. And, and, you know, at most, the bigger investors have one seat on the board and, you know, we still have a lot of founder representation on the boards. So, these are things you have to pay a lot of attention to. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, outside of that, there's a whole bunch of other things with investors around, you know, some of the financial 
special privileges that they may have around around liquidity preferences and a bunch of things that you may see investors push for that you also want to be able to catch in the document. So I will say we've learned, we've learned a lot and, and many of the tricks that investors will try to pull to get outsized representation or, or outsized rights, I, I can now spot them. But at the very beginning, I would never have spotted them. And had I not had a great lawyer, I, I couldn't even imagine how terrible some of our investment agreements would have turned out. So mm-hmm. I think if you use your gut, make sure you have good people, make sure you have incredibly um, skilled and experienced legal representation to guide you through the process. I think you'll end up in a pretty good place. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned like uh, around like operational or ops of a company and um, <clears throat> there's um. I guess it depends on the investor in terms of how hands-on or hands-off they are in terms of like managing the cash that they give you and things like that. And some of the founders that we spoke to, they talk about having professional rigor as like a main driver for them that they need to have like a, as a, as a skill set, uh, for example, and hiring the right people. So like legal counsel is a good one. Um, what other throughout your growth and the different rounds that you've been through and just the, sheer success that you've had, what was some of like the key things that you found or that stuck out to you through that period, whether it's like hiring the right type of person at the right time or distributing, you know, the right amount of funding or capital into the right type of initiatives, any kind of like aha moments that you had throughout your, your journey so far? Well, I think almost everything has been an aha moment. It's funny because you know, we've been doing this for, for over five years now since we started the company. And as much as you think that at a certain point in time, everything will be stable and, and it'll just be business as usual, uh, you know, as a fast growing company, there's almost no such thing as that. And we're almost constantly in, in a battle mode where we're, where we're fighting the next fight for the next level of growth. And you start out as a very small business. And if you, you know, when you look at you starting your business, there's a certain amount of, of early um, rigor that's expected. That's not very much because you're a business of three people and, and, you know, you don't need an HR department when there's three founders in the business and that's mm-hmm. it. And, and you don't really need a sales department when, you know, one of your founders is going to be doing sales. And, and similarly with, with technology, you know, one of our founders was our CTO and we didn't need a technology department. So, all of these things eventually change over time. And so what you'll find is that, is that bit by bit at every stage of investment, there's a, ne- a newer level of rigor and operational um, professionalism that's expected of you by your investors and, and, and by your customers and by everybody around you. And so I think there's lots of learnings because, you know, the other thing I'll say is that you, you know, earning your first hundred thousand dollars of revenue is something that you're really excited about, but then, um, going from 100,000 to 200,000 of revenue is actually a lot easier than going from 10 million to 20 million of revenue because for us to go from 100,000 to 200,000 of revenue, we only have to earn $100,000 more. But going from 10 million to 20 million, that's 10 million more dollars of revenue. And so it becomes, growth becomes increasingly difficult as you get bigger and bigger because the numbers that you have to achieve to achieve the same percentage growth are much, much larger. So, so there's a lot of ongoing, when I talk about in battle mode, there's a lot of ongoing learnings every time because the the skill set that allowed us to achieve an extra hundred thousand dollars of sales is not the same skill set that's going to get us an extra ten million dollars of sales in one year. And so, all of these things are are ongoing learnings. And so, I think what what you and I think if there's an overarching message here, and I'm meandering a little bit, but if there's an overarching message, I think the one learning is that 
you can never get comfortable with the organization you have and the skills you have because as a startup that's growing quickly every single year the skills that got you through last year are not the skills that are going to get you through this year and you have to be willing to adapt and change and learn every single year so we have a phenomenal team and i think a huge amount of our success is due to just the unbelievable strength we have in our team we have people who are so dedicated to what we're trying to build and so skilled at, at delivering just an exceptional output on an ongoing basis. But that being said, in addition to that team, we always have to be on the lookout for what are the new team members we have. So what are the new skill sets that we have to bring in? What are the new departments that we have to form? What are the new product lines, et cetera? So I think, you know, there isn't one answer to this. It's going to vary business by business, but I think the key is having that mindset that you never say, okay, we're done. You know, we, we're, we're, we're good. We have the team we need and we're good to go. We can just keep building forever with this team and these skill sets. And I think that that has to apply even to yourself. I think a good CEO should always be looking at themselves to say, am I still the right leader for this business at this stage? You know, I was the right leader to get us from zero to a million of sales. Am I the right leader to take us from 50 million to a hundred million? Cause it's a very, very different battle at that point in time. And I think so long as you adopt that mindset throughout all of your growth, I think that that will serve you very well to keep growing and succeeding. I, I love that part. Um, I, I know people that um, weren't the right people and they ended up letting themselves go and bring on the next person. Um, with that being said, I mean, you've gone now through these different rounds of funding, have brought on different investors. Um, for you as a CEO uh, and working through that, where has your focus been more? I mean, you're at a different stage when you first started off, you know, with your initial family and friends around of, um, of doctors who participated, but now you're a lot further along. I'm just curious where, where are your priorities at right now? Yeah, they, they've evolved a ton over time. You know, in the early days when we started the company, when there were three of us, I was doing almost everything. I remember um, I would be the physician, one of the physicians staffing the platform. I would be actually, I remember I was managing our digital ads. Like I was the person who was actually creating our ads on AdWords and creating our ads on Facebook and, and monitoring all of the performance metrics on those ads and revising the ads based on the performance. It's crazy. I'd never done digital marketing in my life, but I learned to do it because there was nobody else in the company. There were three of us. And, and so, and I was recruiting other doctors and, and, you know, helping to build product with our CTO, me and me and, and my CTO would sit down and we devised what's the next uh, evolution of the product. And so I was definitely a jack of all trades, which is definitely not what anybody would think of as the CEO's role, but, but that's what's required at that point. So, we're in a very different place now. You know, we, we have almost a hundred employees on the team. Um, there's a lot of people now that, you know, do things like our marketing and our sales and our technology and our product. And, and, you know, fortunately uh, for the business, it's not me doing all those things. Um, unfortunately for me, cause I, I kind of miss doing some of those things, but uh, for me, you know, what, where the role has evolved is it's evolved very much more to being, um, an overall navigator of the business versus a doer of day-to-day -day tasks. So um, we have people who are phenomenal executors of many of the day-to-day -day things, but, but I think if you, if you liken a business to a ship, um, on a ship, you know, you've got engineers and you've got, in, you've, you've got people that are um, doing a whole number of tasks in the crew uh, to make sure that everything works. And, and then there's the captain of the boat and the captain of the boat isn't even the person grabbing the wheel, you know, in classic, you know, movies, the captain's grabbing the wheel, but typically the captain's not grabbing the wheel. There's actually a 
person who's who's actually steering the boat and the captain tells them you know turn the boat to to this orientation or that and and gives the overall direction so i think if you liken a business to a boat um, the ceo has to become like the captain as you get larger so you are the person that is directing uh, the overall vision of where you want the boat to go. And then it's the job of the person who's holding the steering wheel and the people in the engine room and everybody else who's on that crew to make sure that that boat actually gets to that place. And so that is a lot of where the, the roles evolve to. And in the same time, um, there's an external relations part of it. So the captain also not only is deciding where the boat has to go, but the captain typically is, is very much largely responsible for when there's an external event where the that boat has to communicate to the outside world, it's the captain that's the voice of that boat. Um, similarly, uh, the captain makes sure that the boat uh, has the right um, uh, relationships in place, that there's going to be money to actually buy the fuel that the boat has to get at the next stop. So, so I, I again, I look like in the CEO role to all of that as well. So, you know, you're the external voice of the company to investors, to uh, the media, to stakeholders out in the world. You are also the person who is responsible to be thinking when you're thinking about where the boat's going to go to be, to be lining up those relationships that will make sure that there's always fuel in the tank. So what's your next investment round? Um, where does your capital come from? How do you manage your capital, et cetera? Like there's a high level strategy around all of that that you guide as well. So it, it's, it's very much a, a, a transition role. And I would say the role continues to transition um, from that role of doing everything, being that jack of all trades to being very much sort of that, that, you know, captain on the top deck who's setting direction and being an external voice. But it, it's certainly a, a transition in the role that I've seen in almost every startup uh, that I've ever looked at as they've grown from tiny to large. With your recent round of funding, you know, putting that fuel into your ship and that analogy, I, I like it. Um, um, I, I want to ask, you know, with, with that recent round, how did you, or how do you now, and then I'll ask another question after, how do you now kind of plan where that capital should go? Is it, is it, is it more like we got to scale, we got to hire another hundred people or is it something else? Um, I'm just curious, like how do you associate ROI to your spend? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll have, I have a follow-up question to that. Yeah. I think that's one of the trickiest things that companies face after a, a round of investment. Um, you have all this money and then everybody asks you what your plan is as to what you're going to do with the money. And, uh, you know, investors want answers and, and it's really important to be able to provide them with some sort of clarity as to where the funds are going to go. And, and external stakeholders are, are always interested in that as well. Um, when I look at, at, at taking an investment and i've always looked at it this way from our earliest friends i think there's two things that every investment should provide you so one it needs to provide you with financial certainty that you've got money in the bank to operate for a couple more years at a bare minimum you should always look at uh, what we call runway extension so so if we keep operating at the size that we're at or even in, including any growth from the team we want to make sure that we have enough money in the bank that we're not running out anytime soon you know the last thing you want is to uh, blow your investment dollars really quickly and have to raise funds again without the growth that's going to justify raising more funds. Now that brings us to the second point, everything else uh, that you use the funds for outside of just making sure that you can operate for a couple more years has to be about how do you grow the business? So uh, there's two elements to growing a business. One is getting customers and two is fulfilling what those customers are asking for. So when we look at spending the money, um, Getting the customers is part of it. So part of the funds have to be distributed to more sales, more marketing, more sales team members, more marketing team members. That's half of it. 
the other half of the equation is product building, technology building, um, operations, customer support, all the people that are going to allow us to not fall flat on our face as we go from uh, a million patient visits a year to 10 million patients a year. And, and so all of these things have to be thought through. And so if you look at our, our current investment, you know, I would say, you know, certain percentage of the investment is just to keep our bank accounts full over the next couple of years. Another percentage is we're adding on a lot of team members in all those operational fulfillment areas. And we're adding a bunch of team members in sales and marketing. And so you hope against hope that, that what you now have is an engine that's going to drive a lot of growth and that your company is now going to be set up to actually fulfill on that growth. And you're going to have lots of money in your bank account to get you through a couple of years to demonstrate that growth, to bring you to the next milestone. If you were to go back or to give advice to a founder with all the knowledge that you have in terms of um, uh, how to use the money effectively early on. So say, you know, uh, for example, it's um, a first time founder, they're doing the seed round. Um, what would you advise to them, you know, in terms of where should they put their dollars in if it's limited or say it's a million dollars in terms of how to justify the spend and what ROI they should be expecting from it? Just like any kind of examples you could share, I think that'd be great. Yeah. So I, I think you, you, first of all, you have to have a good idea how long you want that money to last you. That, that's the most important thing to start off with because that's going to guide all of your spend decisions. Um, but then when you think about spending the money, um, you really have to be growth focused. So you really have to think for every dollar that I put into my sales organization, my marketing organization, my ads that I placed, what's the, what's the growth we're going to achieve from that? And you need to decide, is this a use of capital that's going to result in the growth that actually allows us within the time frame that this money is going to last for to achieve the milestone we need to achieve to raise the next round? Uh, and it's actually, it sounds hard to calculate, but it's actually not hard, that hard to calculate. So if I look at, just say I've raised a, a round that's a million dollars and I know running the, bear, the base business um, without spending extra money, it's $100,000 or maybe I'll take it back. Maybe I'll say it's $50,000 a month. So let's say it's $50,000 a month. I know I'm going to spend $600,000 to keep us going for the next year. So now really what I've got is an extra $400,000 of incremental spend to drive growth. So now what I need to say is what does the business need to be at? relative today in a year that I can raise money again. And you know, let's pretend that the numbers are, have to be doubled. So now I need to say, if I put $400,000 into growth, what are the specific return on advertising spend metrics that I need to see to see that we would be at double where we are today in 12 months? So you can do all these calculations pretty quickly. And then what that allows you to do is as you start spending money, you're always testing those ROI metrics. You know, you need to be testing, 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 looking at metrics because you know, we haven't gotten it perfect. There've been many times we spent money on things where it did not generate that, that return metric that we would look for. And then we quickly revised, uh, come up with another strategy retest. And only this is the other big thing I would say is don't blow your money in a big way upfront on unproven strategies, test, test, test till you find the things that have really repeatable metrics of return. And that's when you really start to scale it up. So that's what we did. We found the things that worked and then we really scaled them up and it's re resulted in very predictable growth that allowed us to get to that metric of, you know, for us, it wasn't doubling. It was typically we've gone up about four X per year for the last few years, but to get that growth metric that allowed us to say after the next 12 to 18 months, you know, we can in a very, uh, respectable manner now go out and ask for more funds because we used the last amount of funding very much in, in a responsible manner that allowed us to achieve this, you know, very impressive level of growth. And this is what you can expect by giving us money because we've used our money so well in the past. Mm -hmm. 
And you, you mentioned before that the way that you, I mean, sales is the lifeline of a business, especially in, in B2B. Um, I know you have an unconventional approach to sales and it's kind of dis- different from uh, what other, you know, uh, sales forces do where they just kind of hire these massive teams uh, for their efforts. Um, how did you do it and how, you know, how has it worked for you? Mm-hmm. So I, I wish I could say that this was intentional brilliance on our part. I think we, we kind of just stumbled into what turned out to be a, a really good technique for us. Uh, and I'm not sure I would totally recommend this for others, but it certainly is something that, that I have seen some other companies see success with as well. But the history of our, our B2B sales really comes from the fact that we were initially primarily a B2C company. So when we launched our business, we didn't even think about B2B sales. We actually, we looked at companies like Uber and thought, what a great business to be in, you know, with a direct consumer facing marketplace platform and we'll be the next Uber, but in healthcare and it's so glamorous. And so everything was oriented towards consumers coming on and having medical visits. And all of a sudden, a few months into us operating, we started to get inquiries from businesses around, um, the fact that they thought this was a great service, they had tried it out, one of their employees had tried it out and they wanted to know if we had any corporate rates or corporate packages and we, we had nothing at the time, but we very quickly realized, wait a second, we should actually maybe recognize this as an opportunity and have a corporate business where we sell the services to businesses because they clearly value the return that they get by get, offering this to their employees because their employees are healthier and missing work and all these other great things that they get from using our service. And so we started to build up the B2B business for that purpose. But what we had learned, and this was the, the big thing that has really driven a lot of our B2B success, was that this big brand that we had built in direct-to-consumer with a lot of direct-to-consumer advertising and marketing was actually really effectively driving inbound B2B traffic, that B2B buyers were trying us out as patients, and then they wanted to buy it for their company. And so there was a learning in that, which was that you know we obviously needed a B2B sales force to convert on a lot of these leads. But what we learned was that there was this incredible ability to, with B2C marketing, not only drive B2C sales, but also massively lower the cost of acquisition for B2B deals. And so that is something that we've continued to see throughout our journey, which is that we don't need to have a sales force, which is close to as large as what we've seen in, in, in many other uh, companies that are in our industry or similar industries. And that is largely because we don't need to generate nearly the same amount of, of outbound sales calls to make people aware of us. Um, it's a hugely difficult thing in B2B sales for, uh, for potential buyers to know you even exist, but across the country, because we have so much brand awareness, everybody kind of knows we're there. And so every company out there that is considering telemedicine as a benefit for their employees, they've heard of Maple because they or someone that's close to them has used Maple on a consumer basis at some point in time. So um, that's the way it's been till now. Um, I, th- I think going into the future, it's going to continue that way, although we are starting to build up a bigger sales force because our, our organization, as we've grown, has tipped more and more heavily towards B2B revenue being the majority of our revenue. But certainly as a way to actually scale up quickly in B2B without investing massive amounts of fixed costs in terms of a sales force we had to pay for, it actually worked very, very nicely. That's uh, it's a very interesting story. Yeah, um, it's I think it's unique in your situation, also being a marketplace. But yeah, thank, thank you for sharing that. Uh, last question for you, for you Brett. Um, what would, I always like asking this question as my last one. Uh, what would you advise a 30 year old self? 
Wow, that, that's a that's a really tough one. So I, I'll tell you, when when I was 30 years old, I was just finishing my residency and starting to work as an eMERGE doc. And, and so I was in a very different frame of mind, very happy to be an independently practicing physician and wouldn't have dreamed of doing anything like this. So it took me, it took me about, you know, I'm going to say 10 years of practice to actually get to the point where I started to think about potentially doing something entrepreneurial like this. And the reality is some of the frustrations that, that led me to start Maple were in my head much sooner than that. I started to have those frustrations probably after five years of practice. And so I think what I would say to my 30 year old self is don't, don't wait another 10 years after the, when in five years, when you start getting frustrated by this experience on the front lines, don't wait another 10 years to do something about it. Do it earlier because I, I think, you know, we've done so many incredible things with our business. Um, but I, I think, you know, had we done it five or six or seven years earlier, I, you know, I can't even imagine, you know, just how much of a first mover advantage we could have had in this industry. So so that would have been my, my, my biggest advice. Just, you know, listen to what your, what your mind is telling you about frustrations or, or problems or opportunities that exist out there in the world. And don't wait a decade to act on those because um, there's real opportunity when you sense that from an area in which you're a subject matter expert. Nice, nice. Yeah, take action, follow your gut, right? As you said before. Um, yeah. Cool. Um, so I, I, I've, uh, I've covered everything I wanted to cover, Brett. Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate you... Uh, giving us some time and participating on our, on our show. So uh, for everybody that's listening, this was another off the record podcast episode. Uh, just to recap, it's a new podcast with the goal of building a community of VCs and investor and founders around it so they can help build, build better businesses to, uh, together. Uh, so thanks again, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>